Hey guys, welcome to the C1 Church Podcast. I pray that this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you go after Jesus. If you'd like more information about C1 Church, please go to our website at c1.church. Enjoy the message and be blessed. Man, I'm excited for what God's going to do in 2020. Guys, we have two weeks left of a decade. Two weeks left of a decade. And I think God's going to do some awesome things in these two weeks. I've been praying for awesome things. Believe me, two weeks are more than enough time for God to do something utterly astounding, considering he spoke existence into being in a week. So I want you to think about that, and let's believe for some big things between now and the end of the year. But guys, as we round this decade and we launch into a new decade, I want us to launch in letting go of the past. And let's launch in with fresh, new vision and unity. Because as we launch into a new decade and we try to accomplish the vision and the mission that God's placed on us, there are going to be things that are going to try the unity of this church. But God's only going to move where people are united behind the vision. And here's the deal. Where there's two visions, there's division. We have one vision and one purpose. And so we got to be united in that. We have to push forward in that. It's not how you think things should be accomplished. It's how the Lord's laying on our hearts how things should be accomplished. And we got to get on board with that. I know that's, that's hard to hear, but... That's how God's going to grow his church. It's always been through unity. And when we have the love of God in us, Ephesians 3, the end of Ephesians 3 and the beginning of Ephesians 4 says, when we have the love of God in us, we will be united in love. We are united by love. It says, let the the love of God bind you together. So, and also it says that the love of God will help you look past many faults. So guess what? I'm a faulted person. Please let the love of God help you look past my faults. And, <laughs> but, because I'm going to let the love of God help me look past your faults as we try to get this thing going, as we try to reach the lost. Because guess what? There are people that will walk into your homes that will never walk through the doors of C1 until they walk through the doors of your home. But I believe that there's going to be more salvations in living rooms of C1 attenders and and members than there will be up here. And that's how it should be. So I'm excited about what God's going to do. And um, this morning, we're going to be talking about prophecy. And um, the reason why is because we talked about God's plan, God's promise, God's prophecy. I needed a P word. So um, (laughs) I'm joking. It's okay to laugh. Jim got it. He's like, oh, yeah. Um, if, you have, if, if you have concerns about how goofy I am, please talk to Jim Burrow or Phil Barmer. They helped select me, so I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Don't mess with Jim. He's too nice. Definitely pick on Phil, though. So, uh, But we're talking about prophecy today, and I, I want to... I want to declare some things over our church real quick. I'm not going to prophetically declare something or anything like that. I am not a prophet. And if you think about, like, when we think about prophecy, um, like, just, um, I, I want, I, I'm going to go in, I'm going to reach out to the crowd. So when you think about prophecy, what do you guys think of? Just quick hand or, or say it, just go. What? Telling the future. We think, when we think about prophecy and prophets, we, we think about telling the future and stuff like that. And a lot of us get that in our mind. And I'm not saying that's wrong, that's part of it. But really, the, the main role of the prophet in the Old Testament was to call people to repentance. So um, when we talk about prophecy today, we're actually talking about something that, that the Lord said that he would do concerning the future that has been fulfilled in Christ, but the main role of the prophet was to call people to, re- call people to repentance. 
And um, in, in that aspect, I think we're all prophets because we got to call people to repentance. But we don't do that by saying, hey, you're a sinner, you do this. No, you, you do it through the loving grace of God and, and the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin. But I, I want to declare as we, as we round off this decade, and this is what I've been praying, this is what I'm declaring. I pray that in the first two quarters of 2020, that we see more people saved than in the last decade of C1's life. I, I declare that in the mighty name of Jesus. I'm not prophesying that. I'm declaring in faith. And I believe that we can do that through life groups. I believe that we can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that we can do that by the church being the church. But guess what, guys? Every one of our plans will fail. Like, it will never, never happen. It, it's not gonna happen if we're not united and we don't try. It won't happen. We will fail 100% of the time for the things we don't try. And I'm willing, I'm willing to fail over and over again if we're trying to do the will of God. I'm willing to try different things to accomplish the mission of the church. But we have to try. And I believe that we, could, we can see more people saved in the first six months of 2020 than we can in the last decade of C1's life. I believe it. And I, I'm, I'm declaring that, I'm praying that. Another thing I'm gonna declare is that this decade will be the last decade of debt for this church, period. I declare that 2020 will see this debt squished period, and we'll never go into debt again because God's going to provide. Whenever, whenever we need to do anything, God will provide. That's what I'm declaring, and that's what I believe in faith. Now, with that said, I want to define prophecy. I want to define prophecy. I, I didn't just take and Google Webster's Dictionary and just go on with the common definition, I went to what the New Testament refers to as a prophet. And um, the Bible lists twice, um, there's apostles, there's pastors, there's prophets, like the, the fivefold ministry of the church. And this is what the, the word for prophet or prophecy is prophetian. So I'm not a biblical scholar, and I never took biblical languages. I do know how to use a concordance, though, and I do know, kind of know what the line above the E means. <laughs> I'm joking. I do actually know that, but I'm not really good at pronouncing Greek words, because guess what? How many of you guys can speak Greek? Praise God, so no one knows how to pronounce it in here. Yeah, so there's a secret to saying biblical words. I got to tell you a secret. Anyone want to know the secret to saying biblical words? Pastor Heidel probably already knows the secret. He's probably used the secret. But it's say it loud and say it proud, and no one knows the difference. Yeah, I mean, like, so the Greek, the Greek word used in the New Testament for prophecy is a declaration of the will of God, whether with special reference to the future. And then another definition used is a gift of communicating and enforcing revealed truth. So as we look at a prophecy found in Amos that today, we're not ready for it yet, but as we look at it, it's not your typical Christmas prophecy, but it's so powerful what it, what it implies. And we're going to unpack it today. But there were over 300 prophecies. There were over 300 prophecies that Christ had to fulfill to be the Messiah. When he walked the face of the earth, there are over 300 plus prophecies that were prophesied about the coming Messiah that would give salvation to all mankind. And Christian Broadcasting Network, or CBN, put out this article, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote them, a little snippet of it, because they say this so well, but I want you to understand the magnitude of what Christ did in fulfilling these prophecies. Let's look at it really quick. Down through history... God provided us a roadmap. He foretold various signs and conditions through his prophets. 
These prophets spoke of things that mankind should watch for so that the Messiah would be recognized and believed. These signs or prophecies were given to us in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before Jesus was born. Its writings were completed 450 B.C. So there was, I'm going to stop for a second, there was a gap where God stopped talking between Malachi and Matthew, and there was a 450-year gap of silence. And so all the prophecies about Christ were accomplished up to 450 years before he was ever born. This wasn't like they were looking at the condition of the world like a year or two before Christ was born and predicting something that they could see. This was them saying, this is what the Lord laid on my heart and I'm speaking it in faith, believing God will accomplish it. And it was up to 450 years before Christ. Everyone who prophesied in the Old Testament never got to see the fulfilled prophecy. The Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. Contains over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his life death, and resurrection. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy are staggering. And this is what mathematicians say. So I'm quoting Christian Broadcasting Network. They did their homework. One person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion. Just one person fulfilling eight prophecies. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. We don't even have a word for how much that is. Like, that's huge. One person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies, only Jesus. Let's give Jesus some praise. Come on, thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling prophecies that we might have a relationship only Jesus, only God could step into humanity and accomplish everything that was predicted through the Holy Spirit for him to do while he walked for 33 and a half years on this earth. Only Jesus could do that. The odds were against him. So I, I, I brought this out because I want you to understand sometimes we, 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 we thank God for what he did, but what he did not only was genetically or, or, or physiologically impossible. He was born through a virgin. Impossible. He did the impossible. He accomplished the impossible. Mathematically, it was impossible. Not one person who's ever lived could accomplish what Jesus did mathematically. I love it when, when science and mathematics back up what the Bible already says and always will. But the, the reality is everything about Jesus' life was an impossibility, and yet he did it so that we could have a relationship with him. So when we talk about prophecy, it's like sometimes we, we think, oh, Jesus fulfilled prophecy, but it was huge. It was huge that he walked in perfect obedience to the Holy Spirit to accomplish all 300 plus. Man, he was fulfilling prophecy from the moment he was conceived to the moment that he died. Even on the cross, he was fulfilling prophecy. When he asked for a drink, that was a prophecy. I mean, I'm talking Jesus, his life was walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And he walked in perfect obedience. So, honestly, so we don't have to. Because we can't. So today, I want to read some scripture out of Acts 15, and then we're going to look out of Amos chapter 9. So let's look at Acts 15 real quick. And this is the prophecy that James is reading, and it's found in verses 12 through 18. And I want us to grab hold of this, because there's something that James says about the, the tent of David that's so powerful and what it means for us. And, and Ben alluded to it earlier before we sing that last song, but when we think about Christmas, we think about the manger, but we forget about the cross. But the point of the manger was to get Jesus to the cross to get him to walk out of the grave so that we can have relationship with him. And what just happened to contextualize this story is Peter went to a town called Joppa, 
He was up on the roof. He was praying. He fell into a, a deep sleep. Some translations say trance. The Lord gave him a vision, and it was a sheet filled with all kind of unclean animals like pigs and stuff that the Jews weren't allowed to eat. Praise God, he broke that because now we can have bacon. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but the, the Lord lowered the sheet to, to Peter, and he said, kill and eat. And Peter was more holy than God. Uh, at the moment, he goes, uh, excuse me, God, I've, my, my lips have never touched anything unclean. I cannot do that. And, um, and Jesus is like, excuse me, Peter, but don't call anything unclean, which God has made clean. And then he does this three times, and he has the same argument. He wasn't catching the hint at all. Finally, the angel says, Peter, there are people downstairs looking for you. They're sent here from God. Just go with them. He doesn't have any details they're, they're centurions, they're Romans, they're, they're enemies of the Jews. I say that loosely, but they're, they're ruling the Jews. And, and Peter goes downstairs and he goes with them. And he walks in and he's like, hey, who are you? And they're like, we're looking for Peter, uh, Simon named Peter. And um, he's like, that's me, and I'm supposed to go with you. And so he went, he walks into Cornelius' house, which is a God-fearing Gentile who is a Roman centurion, all this stuff. And, and he just starts speaking. And they accept faith in Jesus. And then while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and, and, and they all start speaking in tongues, well, and, and, and they get baptized in water, they get baptized in the Spirit. It's this beautiful thing. And then Peter has to come back and justify himself to the leaders of the church, because up to that point, not one Gentile was saved. They thought the Messiah was for the Jews. They didn't know Gentiles could be saved. They didn't know Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit. Praise God, that was God's plan all along, but suddenly... They're like, what just happened? This is not just for Jews? And then Peter, he defends himself. He said, the Lord told me to. And so we, see, we step into this situation in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas, Paul is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He goes and preaches. And he's telling them all about the people who are getting saved and baptized. And we step into it. It says, then the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Now this is Jesus' little brother, the guy who used to say, Jesus, you're embarrassing the family, come with me. Then he sees the resurrected Messiah, Savior of the world, and he goes, okay, that makes sense. All those years living with him, I didn't believe that he was the son of God, but suddenly I'm putting faith in my older brother. And, and now James, he's a pastor of the church in Jerusalem, arguably the biggest church in the New Testament, spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. These things, things known from long ago. So we're going to jump straight to Amos, because James is quoting the prophet Amos. And Amos says, he says this, In that day... I will restore the fallen tent of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. So with that said, it's about as clear as mud. <laughs> what is the tent of David? That begs the question. So James is making this argument before the church leaders talking about how God's going to restore the tent of David. Amos prophesies that God will rebuild the tent of David. Notice that he doesn't say he's going to rebuild the tent of Moses, which is a tabernacle, which God told Moses to build. He says the tent of David. So what is the tent of David? So to understand this, we have to go to 1 Chronicles and 1 Samuel. They, they tell the story in a different way. And I'm, I'm actually, it's not up there. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell you what's going on. I want you to follow me. It's in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, and then in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. 
So you want to just back it like, you know, like, well, I'm just going to make sure he's telling the truth. I'm going to go look it up later. I pray that you do. Please, please always verify the scripture before and after I speak. Please, because the Holy, like, number one, I'm human. So, but in First Chronicles and in, and in Second Samuel, it's, it's, it's a story, it's the same story told from two different authors. And what's going on is, there's the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God. Now, what this is, is a, a wooden box covered in gold with a lid that has two angels, two cherub angels, like, leaning in with, uh, with, their, with their wings pointed at each other. And in the box is the, the, the tablets that God gave Moses, the Ten Commandments, and, and Mo, uh, Aaron's staff, all this stuff. There's, there's things that, that are in the box. And what happened was, when they came out of Egypt... The Lord told Moses to build this ark. And, what, and then they built this tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a tent. It had two chambers in it. It had the holy place and the most holy place. And they put the ark in the most holy place. And what separated the, the holy place from the most holy place was like a six-inch, like, thick veil. Like, it was really thick. It wasn't quite a wall. It wasn't quite solid. But it was really thick, heavy curtain, veil thing, and then they made sacrifices, and God's presence came and just hit the tabernacle, and his presence dwelt among his people in the ark of God. Like, the ark represented the presence of God on earth. We got to understand this before we move forward. The, pre- the ark represented the presence of God, and what happened was the the tabernacle of God was in Gideon, Gibeon. And David wanted the ark in Jerusalem where he was living. But in all his skirmishes with the Philistines, the Philistines captured the ark. And like any ancient civilization, they carried it off as a prized possession because they knew that they made sacrifices to their God. To the Philistines, this was nothing more than an idol. But to the Jews, they understood that this isn't an idol. This represents, and the presence of God rests here. And so the Philistines carried it off and put it in their temple to their God, Dagon. And they had a huge idol to Dagon. And it's a really funny story. Go read it. It's amazing. Because every morning they would, go, they would get up to go worship Dagon, and they would find Dagon laid flat in front of the ark. He couldn't stand in the presence of God. He just, like every morning they would go to sacrifice to their gods, the Philistines would, and their idol was just laid a base in front of, in front of the ark of God. So we step into the story, and David finally gets to the point where he can accrue the ark of the covenant or the ark of God. And he's like, we're going to take it back to Jerusalem, and he's excited. He has a whole nation with him. They're sacrificing, they're praising, they're, they're, they're excited about what what's happening. And they're, they're doing everything right, except one thing. They're doing everything right, except he even had a new, he had a new cart made to be pulled by some oxen. And he puts the ark on a new cart. It's never been used for anything else. You would think that's a good idea because guess what? Gold is stinking heavy. The ark was a big box covered in gold. Gold is heavy. Who wants to carry this for miles? No one. No one wants to carry it for miles. So he puts it on an ark. But the problem being, God told his people that his presence should be carried by his people. And what David did, and if you're taking notes, I I don't really, like, it's not going to be like a point, and I'm going to talk about it. I'm just going to kind of hit my points as I talk today. It's going to be a little different. But if you're taking notes This is the first thought I want you to write down. God wants his presence to rest on you and not stuff. And the reason why this is so important is because we do the very same thing today. 
David was treating the presence of God as common to the point where he didn't do what God asked him to do with it. He took and placed it on stuff. How do we do that today, Ryan? Well, just look around. Look up, look down, look all around. You see this building? You see this sheetrock, this paint, these beams? We put the presence of God on stuff. You know what God gets God's presence here? You, 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 you. That teddy bear? No, not the teddy bear. That's my daughter's teddy bear. You, 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 you. We get the presence of God here because God's presence is on us. When this building is empty, it's creepy. God's presence isn't creepy. When this building is empty, it makes noises. God's presence might make us make noises, but this building is just a building. There's nothing special about this building. Can God use a building? Absolutely. But he uses a building for his people. His people aren't used for a building because we are the church of the living God. And when we put God's presence on stuff, we are going to shortchange ourselves of what God wants to do through us. Because David was looking for the easy way out. Because it's easy to say, well, God's presence is on that church building. Or God's presence is on that seat. Every time I sit here, the Lord just moves and something about this spot. And there's not anything about that spot. It's your anticipation. It's like you have this anticipation when you come here that God's going to do something. But the reality is God can do it when you're taking a shower. God can do it when, when, when you're laying in bed at night. God can do it on your drive to, to church. You, you don't have to have a place or a location for God's presence to transform you, to rock you, to change you. But we make things holy that God never intended to be holy. And David put the presence of God on stuff when God's saying, I want my presence to rest on my people. I want my presence to rest on my people. And, and the, the thing is, when you take, and, and, and how, 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 did, how did they carry the ark? They took and put poles through, through both sides of it. And then they had the Levites come along. And the Levites were the, were the people, of the priest tribe of Israel. They, they were priests. Well, the Bible says we're a peculiar people. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. The church of the living God, we're all priests now. We are. If you accepted Jesus Christ, you're part of his priesthood. And that means God wants to rest his anointing and his presence on you. But when they would pick up the ark, they had these poles. And there was people in front of the ark and people behind the ark and on each side of the ark. And these Levites would get up under it and they would stand up and rest this stuff on their shoulders. And guess what? This is not that heavy. I mean, it's, it's really not that bad. But that was heavy. And when God's presence rests on you, it makes you walk different. It makes you talk different. It makes you do things. When you have that resting on you, you're doing things different. Guess what? You breathe differently when God's presence rests on you. When they were carrying the ark, you better believe they weren't going, oh yeah, this is great. I just can't believe this. Oh, I'm going to power walk all the way to Jerusalem. No, they weren't doing that. They, were, they, they had this on them and they were walking and they were struggling. And, but the thing is, when we walk with God's presence on us, they're... We're not doing it alone because we all carry it. But it makes us walk differently. Sometimes it makes us slow down and say, stop, wait. Sometimes it says, go forward. But guess what? When we walk with the presence of God on us, when we step into things that could kill us, he opens it up. When the children of Israel were taking the land of Judah in the promise in the book of Joshua, the, the priest went out before them. And guess what? The Jordan River was in flood and, and it would have swept the nation away. It was keeping them from inheriting their province, but they walked with the presence of God on them. And as they stepped into the Jordan, it backed up and they walked across the river. So I want you to get this. When you walk with the presence of God on you, it will open up doors. It will let you walk into your present. It will let you walk into your promise. It will let you. 
But we got to stop putting it on stuff. We got to stop treating it as common. We have to stop that because God has so much more for us. I like to backpack, and I actually brought my pack, and then I forgot that it was in my office. But when I pack, I usually make it about 70 pounds. Because guess what? In my pack, when I backpack, I have a shelter, I have a sleeping bag, I have food, I have water. Water's heavy, FYI. So if you can bring a water filter and you know where fresh water sources are, just backpacking advice from Pastor Ryan, um, bring a water filter. But you still have to bring bottles and stuff like that to fill them up and all this stuff. But I can tell you this. When my pack is not on me, I can jog, I can run, I can do all sorts of things. I could probably get to my destination faster if I didn't have to carry the pack because you usually hike 8 to 10 miles a day on a good backpacking journey and stuff like that. I could probably get there faster without my pack. But guess what? The next day, I'm probably going to pass out from not having water and not having food. I'm probably going to pass. I might freeze to death that, that, that night because I don't have shelter or a sleeping bag. When, when my pack is on me, I walk differently. I breathe differently. It, it changes me. It changes my pace. It changes how I stand. When my pack's on me, I can't slouch because it pulls back on my shoulders and it pushes in on my lower back. It makes me stand up straight and it makes me go. Like, like, but, but the reality is everything I need is in that pack. There's food, there's shelter, there, there's, there's water, there's a change of clothes for when I get dirty. There's covering. That's what God's presence is. There's shelter. There's substance. There's a change of clothes for when we get sinful. But we have to, we have to let it rest on us. Someone else can't carry that for you. We have to let God's presence rest on us. David put the presence of God on a cart. This is not what God commanded, nor did he want. Why did God not want his presence on a cart? Because God loves people. God loves people. God wants to be with people. That's why he, he, he didn't have to make the ark. He didn't have to dwell among his people. He chose to because God wants to be with his people. And then something else happened because they weren't doing it God's way. How many of you guys know that when we don't do things God's way, it does not work out well? Like, I, I know that. It might seem logical. A cart pulled by oxen seems logical because the ark is heavy. It makes sense. But it doesn't work out because guess what? As they're walking, the, the oxen, they, they, they hit a threshing floor and they don't have good traction and they start to slip. And so there's this guy, there's a guide in front of the oxen and, and, and in front of the cart and there's one behind him and his name was Uzzah. And it says that he was there to steady and guide the ark. And when it started to slip and get unsteady, he reached up to stable and steady the ark. And it made God mad. And God struck him dead. His, ten, his intentions were good. He wanted to lend God a hand. You see the irony? Uzzah in Hebrew literally means strength. Uzzah was lending God his strength. He was guiding and steadying the presence of God. If you're taking notes, this would be my second thought. God wants his presence to guide and steady you. That means we got to get it off the cart, get it off of stuff. And let, when, when we put God in a box, when we put God on stuff, when we put God's presence on things, we try to direct it. We try to make God work the way we want him to work. We try to lend him our strength, with his, which is humorous at best. 
and we try to reach up and we try to do things for God. God, let me do you a favor. Let me help you out, God. And then we forget that he is God Almighty and that his presence should be sustaining us, should be guiding us, should be steadying us. David later writes in Psalms, he said, when I said my foot is slipping, your steadfast love steadied me. He learned his lesson. But David took and he got mad at God. He got mad at God for killing Uzzah and he named the place of his anger after Uzzah. Isn't that something that we tend to name the places where we get hurt and get mad instead of remembering where God blessed us instead of remembering what God brought us out of? I mean, like, God, David got mad at God. But how often do we try to do this in our life? We try to take the steering wheel from God. We try to get in the driver's seat. Um, sometimes, like, when I'm parked out there, I'll take Sky down. I'm like, hey, Sky, we're going to bring the vehicle up. And I let her sit in my lap, and I let her steer. And I still have my hand on the steering wheel, but I let her have full control of the gas pedal. I'm just joking. Um, but she's steering it, and sometimes I'm, try, I'm directing. I'm, like, really struggling because she's a strong little booger. And I'm like, no, Sky, we can't run into the fence, or we can't run into the wall. We can't. And so I have to redirect her. But sometimes she's like, Daddy, I want to do it. And she doesn't understand that when she has control, it makes it harder for, God, for me to guide her. It makes it harder for me to guide what's going on in her life when she tries to hold on. I want her to steer. I want her to, to go in the right direction. But the reality is sometimes God has to step in. And the tighter we hold control of our lives, the tighter we try to manipulate God, the tighter we try to get God to do what we want him to do, the harder it is for him to accomplish his will in us. The harder it is for him to see his purpose done on earth. And what will eventually happen is that he's still, you still have a purpose. He'll still move through you, but you have to get to the point where you have to repent and say, okay, God, I don't want control anymore because he'll move on and bless someone else. He'll move on and, and, and do something else until you're ready to let him because he's not going to force you to give up control. But the reality is what we do is we let God's presence we, we, we try to dictate God's presence. We try, to, we try to treat him sometimes like a genie in a bottle. And we try to guide him and we, 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 we try to tell him what we think is best. Instead of saying, God, what is best and how can I be a part of that? God, what are you doing and how can I get on board with that? God, how are you moving and how can I be a part of where you're already moving? He reached up and he tried to study God where God wants his presence to steady us. He tried it to guide God, where God wants to guide us. So what, what did David do? He gets mad about the whole situation, kind of throws a tantrum. We're getting to David's tent here in a second. Don't tr Just go with me. And he puts the ark in Obed-Edom's house. Now, Obed-Edom, he just has a house there. They put the ark in it, and it's resting and it's there for three months. And in that three months, God blesses the socks off of Obed-Edom. I imagine that David, like David probably expected Obed-Edom to die because of what just happened to Uzzah. But God is just blessing Obed's house. Like, because guess what? Obed is, is he's treating God's presence the way we should, with reverence and holy fear. There is an early church historian named Josephus, and he records in, in some of his writings, so, so this is extra biblical, it's not in the Bible, so, but, but these are historical records. It's, he says, he records that he would go in to the room the ark was and sit at it, just sit in its presence twice a day. He didn't ask God for anything. He just sat there and basked in the presence of God. And God blessed. God blessed his family. God blessed his finances. God blessed his livestock. God blessed his fields. God blessed every aspect of his life. And the word got back to David. 
And they're like, hey, have you heard about what's going on with, with Obed-Edom? He's like, is he dead yet? Is he riddled with disease, you know? And they're like, no, dude, that guy's loaded. The Lord has blessed his socks off. I don't know why he was wearing socks with sandals anyways. He's not German. But the Lord blessed his socks off. He was just like, and David's like, what? He's like, I got to get the ark to Jerusalem. Like, it's time for God to bless his people. And this time, this time Chronicles records that, that the Lord, that, that, that David says, not one person, but the Levites are going to carry the ark. And you tell all the Levites to go purify themselves before they approach the presence of God so they are worthy to carry the ark of God. He learned his lesson. And they went and got the ark. And it says, they picked it up and they walked six steps and then they made a sacrifice. They didn't even make it six steps before they started praising God for what he wants to do in their life. They, they couldn't make it six steps. And, and this, is, this is that story in the Bible where David, he has a priestly garment on and he's dancing all undignified and his wife gets all mad at him. I can't believe you're conducting yourself like that in the presence of slave girls. And David's like, you... This is the one time that it's okay to tell your wife to shut up. Um, he tells her to hush up because he, when it comes to a relationship and praising God, he says, be quiet. I will even get more undignified than this if it means I'm worshiping my God. And, and he teaches us a valuable lesson about worship because as they bring the ark into the tent of David, there's something that happens. A, a new form of worship starts to happen before the presence of God. So what's significant about the tent of David? We went through this whole story of how David got the presence of God into his tent. But what's significant about the tent of David? Well, we talked about the tabernacle, the, the tent that God instructed Moses to build to house his presence and how there was a holy place. There was a separation between God and his people in that tent. And only the priests could go in during the Passover to worship once a year. And only the high priest did that. And they made a sacrifice. It was very rigid. It was very religious. And it was very legalistic. There was no dancing. There was no... Nothing like that. But when David brought the tent, what brought the ark to his tent, there was no barrier between God and his people. So when God says in Amos, I'm going to rebuild the tent of David, and James echoes that in Acts 17, he rebuilt it through the person and work of Jesus Christ because God wants to be with his people. He wants no barrier between his presence and his people. And that should be encouraging this year because sometimes we put barriers up between us and God. But the reality is in my last my last thought for you is God wants his presence to be on you and in you. David introduced a sacrifice that was not recorded yet in the, New, in the Old Testament. It's called a sacrifice of praise. And there's new forms. He, they would dance before the Lord. They would shout before the Lord. And this is a really cool part about the tent of David. Everyone could come and do it, not just the priest. Everyone, by everyone, I'm, I'm not just talking like the Jews, the chosen people for which God is going to bring the Messiah to save the world. Everyone, Gentiles and Jews alike, could come before God at the tent of David. And so when James says this in the book of Acts, about how God wants to restore David's fallen tent and how he did, that is so encouraging for us. This is a prophecy that we got to grab a hold of because it brings the presence of God to people like you and me who aren't Jews, who aren't the chosen people, who are Gentiles. And it says God wants to be with us, he wants to rest on us, and he wants to be in us. We sing about it, we say, Emmanuel, God with us. And, and, and the reality is God is still with us, and he's still walking with us. 
Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians that, don't you know that you're bought with a price? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the, we are the temple now. Or God's presence, the same presence that rested on the ark, the same presence that killed Uzzah when he touched the ark, is the same presence that lives in us. And so when we, when we go through the remainder of this year and we talk about the prophecy of God and all this stuff, and God, re, we, no one talks about God rebuilding the ark or the tent of David, but I want us to walk away today encouraged because God wants us. He wants his presence to be with us. And what I also want us to walk away with thinking, Lord, what areas in my life am I trying to guide you? And am I trying to direct you? And what areas in my life am I trying to steady you? And I also want us to ask this question. God, Father, where am I saying, Lord, let your presence rest on this stuff? How have I, how have I asked the Lord to rest his presence on stuff? Ben, if you would. Because when you understand how much God loves you, how much God cares for you, what God did to let his presence rest on you, to remove every barrier between you and him, you'll never want it to rest on anything else. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. Why would, you want, why, why would you want his presence to rest on anything else? Some of us are struggling with things today, and we don't have joy. They're robbing our joy. But maybe it's because you've let his presence rest on something else and not you. Because when you're letting his presence rest on you, no matter what the earth throws at you, no matter what the enemy throws at you, no matter what you're going through, you can have joy. You can have faith. You can say, you know what? No weapon formed against me will prosper. I don't care what the enemy's trying to do. God is more than enough. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I don't want to just do the same thing that we always do. Not to say that there's anything wrong with it. But I want us to have a moment with God that turns into a daily moment with God that turns into I can't wait to get in his presence again and I just asked some questions but I want us to as as we worship to start asking because guys I'm not asking you to do anything I didn't do when I started preparing this message, I got alone with God and I started repenting of all the times in my life where I've put God's presence on things and, and I, I, I've treated God's presence care, carelessly. I've treated God carelessly. I, I try to guide God to do my bidding instead of me stepping into what God wants to do through me. Because God wants to do more through you than you could ever get <laughs> him to do for you. God wants to do some things, but it starts with saying, God, forgive me. <laughs> this is not a salvation thing. This is, this is just a, a cleaning house thing. We talked about cleaning our house earlier, but guess what? When we clean house, we, 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 we discover junk. We discover junk and we, we don't need anymore. And I think there, there are things that we address today that, that we need to clean out before we launch into a new decade. We need to get rid of some stuff. And so we're just going to have a moment. And I'm not going to lead you in a prayer, but I want you to pray. Just ask him, Lord, are there any areas of my life where I've treated your presence with contempt? Are there any areas of my life where I've tried to let your presence rest on something, try to make something holy that's not holy? Are there any areas in my life where I need to relinquish control? Let's just take just a moment and pray. Some of us here today kind of like my daughter 
you like to be surrounded by the presence of God. Like my daughter likes to sit on my lap and drive, but you're not willing to go in the same direction as him. I think that there's a, there's a moment here that God's saying, before we round off this year, let's go in the same direction. Let's go in the same direction. Let's be about the same thing. And I, I, I'm, I'm believing and I'm trusting every person in here that they're going to take a moment we're, and, and truly pray. If that's you, there needs to be repentance. Repentance is a change of direction. It, it, it's not just forgive me, it's, it's a, a change. Lord, I've, I've, I've kicked against the goats for too long as, as Jesus told Paul. He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's stupid to kick against the goats. Like, go against the grain. Why, why would we go against the will of God? Some of us, I'm not saying that you're walking outside the will of God, but I, I think that we're trying to guide and direct God. Let's just say, God, help me let go of the steering wheel and help me to enjoy where you're taking me. Because guess what? Guys, I'm a control freak. I want to be in control, but this is a, this. I'm, I'm praying with you. God, help me let go. When I walk through the doors of this church, I kid you not, I pray, saying, God, let me check my preferences at the door. Because it's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about King Jesus. So let's pray, Lord, if I'm trying to steady you or direct you in my life, forgive me and help me launch into this new decade trusting you with the direction let's just take a moment and pray the last thing I want us to pray about is let's ask let's just ask God's presence. Let's invite it down on us. Because God wants his presence to be on you. He wants his presence to be in you. Jesus literally died so that we can have access to the presence of God. The Bible says that when he died, there's a couple things that happened that veil that we were talking about in the tabernacle that separated the presence of God from the people, it says it tore from top to bottom. And God's presence left the ark of God. And where did it go? It went into his people. We are the temple now. And his presence is in you. It's time that, that, that we recognize it and we walk in it and we, and we just invite it to have control. Let's just take a moment. I think there's a beautiful thing here just say, God, I want you to be on me and in me. How can I serve you? How can I trust you? Father, help us to walk out of service, walking new, just like the priest. Just like the priest walked different when they carried your presence. Lord, let us walk different as we walk into the marketplace, as we walk into homes, as we walk in to this new decade. Let us walk different than we've walked before. Let us walk with a new purpose, a new direction. Let us walk with a new anointing, Father God, not to see what you've done in the past, but to see something new. Jesus, you're doing a new thing. Do we not perceive it? Lord, I thank you for the new thing that you are doing. Lord, help us to walk your presence out in every area, in every small little fraction of our life, in every small little compartment of our life. Lord, we invite your presence on us and in us 
to transform us to be like you, Jesus. See, one church can't transform anyone, but Christ in us can transform the world. Father, you are welcome. Have your way. As we round this decade off, you're welcome. Have your way launching into the new decade. Have your way, Jesus. to rest on us let's like we've just gone through a whole this whole day has been worship everything we do is worship as a as a follower but let's worship through song let's lift up the name that's above every name if you want to get undignified and dance like David go for it I don't care but let's praise Jesus because he's worthy How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away as wound which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Called out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me I will not boast in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer but this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom How deep my sin, yet deeper still The love of Christ for me That He would live, that He should die and leave the grave empty How deep my sin Yet deeper still The love of Christ for me That He would live That He would die And leave the grave empty Ascended high He is alive will return again the risen son the lamb of god who takes away my sin how deep the father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he his only Son to make a wretch his treasure.
Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, Lord, that you took a wretch like me. Father God, that you made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Praise the Lord, all his people. Let's lift him up. Let's give him some praise. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, you're good. Thank you, Father. We thank you for your presence. Lord, we thank you for the veil that you tore for, for, for rebuilding David's tent that we might have access to you. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We lift you up. We thank you, God, that you do the impossible every day and you work in your people to make us like Christ, that you transform us, that you don't give up on us, that you love us. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, you're so good. So good. <laughs> oh, God, you're so 